buildings will have quote unquote accessible entrances, but they will be around the back of the building. So there's this joke that everybody has within like the disability community or quadriplegic wheelchair users who are like, yeah, you know, we always have to go by the dumpsters. Welcome to Let's Get Proximate, the podcast that explores the stories, experiences, and challenges of others so we can learn to innovate, create, and collaborate with lived experiences different from our own. Join host Alex Allen and Callie McKee as they explore the power and proximity, leveraging the value of meaningful interactions and insights to disrupt false narratives and foster understanding that leads to real and lasting transformation. Let's dive into the latest episode and learn more about creating an inclusive future for all. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps to securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Get Proximate podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Callie McKee. Today, I am wearing a blue blazer with some like cool star constellation goodness going on here, a Cisco Impact t-shirt. I am a white woman in her middle age, I'll just say, with brown hair that's curly and has some gray streaks going through it. In my background today is a blue wall with all of my Lego creations because I geek out on the Lego. Before I introduce our amazing guest today, who I'm so excited is going to get to talk with us. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of proximity this week. So this week, you know, in proximity land, one of the things Alex and I got a really great chance to do was take proximity to Cisco Live. And Cisco Live is our partnership event. So we have Cisco customers, Cisco partners in there as well. And we were able to work with our friends over in IT and Fletcher Previn's organization. We were able to work over there and help leaders talk about the skills that we need to get proximate, talk about the role modeling of proximity, what it looked and sounded like. And friends, I would say we had a great session. Leaders really leaned into these types of conversations. Eric Nip, who's a VP in sales, did this with us and was a great participant to help leaders understand what it means to get proximate every day. So super big win for proximity. Super great that we got to take that out to our partners and customers and give it a run and see how proximity goes. But now we're back. I'm back in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I am back here with Mary Fernandez, who's our special guest today. I'm so excited that she's here. I'm going to let her introduce herself, but I will just say first, Mary is our lead disability inclusion consultant at Cisco. And Mary is a very busy person doing her job at Cisco. I met Mary through my work with the diversity and inclusion team. And just immediately just wanted to hang out with Mary all the time to continue to get proximate. I've learned from Mary. I've had great conversations. We've helped each other in this space. And I can't wait for y'all to meet Mary as well. So Mary, let me pass it over to you. And can you just say hi to our listeners and introduce yourself a bit? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Callie, for the warm introduction. My name is Mary Fernandez. She, her pronouns. I am a brown woman with getting a little bit longer than shoulder length curly hair. <laughs> and today I'm wearing this kind of off the shoulder top that has like iridescent sleeves with different shades of blues and such. It's gorgeous. I love it. And I have been here at Cisco for three years before coming to Cisco 
I mostly worked in the nonprofit space doing disability rights work. I identify as disabled. I am blind along with some other fun neurodivergent things like ADHD, which just make me a super interesting, exciting person to know. I'm very long-winded. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that, Mary. And yes, the top is gorgeous. We're going to talk fashion later because you don't even know Mary is a fashionista. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But Mary, as we're talking both about your work at Cisco, your personal work, I mean, I know you're an artist as well. There's so many dimensions to you. I'd love to know just a little bit about, you know, kind of where we started. If you're ready to get proximate with us, first, let me ask, are you ready to get proximate? I'm ready to get proximate. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> so talk to you a little bit about how you grew up, you know, some of those kind of influences of how you grew up or, you know, some of the things that really shaped who you think you are today. So I was born in Columbia, South America, not like Columbia, Ohio, or many of the Columbias in the United States. And I immigrated to the U.S. when I was almost eight years old. And while I was in Colombia, my mom immigrated to the U.S. when I was about two years old. And before she left, I still had vision. So while she was here trying to get everything together to get my brother and I to the U.S., I went blind. And that was a really interesting moment for her because she obviously as a mom was really concerned, but she also redoubled her efforts because she knew that I would have a better chance at being successful in the United States. So while I was in Colombia, I did not attend school because they didn't know how to teach blind children. And I think that was one of the things that really has shaped my life. I'm very passionate about education. I'm very passionate about equitable education. And I also know that if I hadn't worked really hard on my education, I would not be where I am today, like legit. And so that's a big part of my identity. Also as an immigrant, of course, that adds a layer of navigating the world in so many different ways. Like I always tell people when I was a child, you know, we spoke English. My mom's English was limited. So we'd be at a lawyer's office and I'd be translating as an eight-year-old. But <laughs> what's really nice about that is that as children, it makes you feel really useful and like you have a purpose and that you're helping your parents. And it is a responsibility, but at the same time, it gives us a sense of resilience and just being aware of what's happening around you. That's so interesting, Mary. Like, I just wanted to pause on that because when I was first listening to you talk about this, I didn't realize that when you talk about when you went blind, that your mom wasn't actually with you at that time. So what was that like as someone who was kind of going through, I'm sure something that maybe at that young age, you weren't totally sure what was going on or maybe a little scary and not having your mom there or, you know, kind of what were some of those feelings there? Yeah, so... You know, the nice thing about being a child and losing a sensory, like developing a sensory disability is that you start adjusting without knowing that you're adjusting because you're a kid and kids are so flexible. So I remember like, I don't remember the day I couldn't see anymore, but I remember when it was starting to go. So I remember being at a doctor's office when I was five and there was another little girl who was also five. And I remember that at that point, I could only see like her shadow. Like I knew she was there. That was all I could see. I remember when I was six, I had a birthday party and wound up 
It's a very long story, but I wound up with two cakes, which was like a real luxury. And the reason I wanted the cake, it was my neighbor who gave it to me. The reason I wanted that cake is every time we went to the store, I could see the red flowers on it. Like that was basically all I could see. And I'm like, that's the most beautiful cake. I want that cake. And so (laughs) during my birthday, all I could see was like the red flowers and I could see my cousin's red lipstick. And like, I could see that my dress, I really liked my dress because he had like black and white. So it was like that high contrast. But there was no time that like, I don't actually remember, like I woke up one day and I couldn't see. I just remember those moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And then I think it's so interesting as you talk about that and then becoming an advocate, not only for yourself, but then when you did come to the U.S., almost being an advocate for your mom and for you talked about, you know, translating at a lawyer's office when you're eight years old and that feeling of feeling useful and of helping. I mean, Mary, I see this knowing you a little bit. I see this in you now, this helping nature. Do you think that started because of kind of what you had to do or had the opportunity to do when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I have a lot of opinions and I've been smart enough to get a job that pays me for it. That you're living the dream right there. But also, I think like it's multiple things, right? I think my identity is multi-layered. One, there's the immigrant side. And then two, there's the disability side. And even though it was such a contrast and my mom did such an amazing job because in school, for instance, there's this really funny story that because I didn't have the best social skills when I came here because I grew up super isolated. Like I grew up with my grandmother who wouldn't really let us play with other kids. And then I went blind and that was different to kids. So I did not have social skills, y'all. I People don't believe me. Like I was so introverted I didn't talk. I didn't like strangers. And I mean, that makes sense when you're eight, you're totally blind. And now you're thrown into this space where like you're going to school for the first time and where you're disabled, all these people start talking at you, social workers, evaluators, teacher for the visually impaired, like all of these adults are now asking me questions. And during one of my assessments, I just shut down. Like I just didn't respond. And so my mom gets the report and she goes, Mary, they're saying you're deaf and blind. (laughs) And we were cracking up. I was like, she's like, did you not hear them talk? I was like, no, I could hear them. I just didn't want to talk to them. (laughs) Okay, so that that is so, that is so funny because it's like you forget. So you talk about all those different dimensions, right? You talk about, you know, the immigrant part. You talk about the blind part. There's also the fact that you're a kid still. I was a child and that's the point, right? Right. And all that child stuff. Yes. And sometimes kids get really sick of adults talking at them. I mean, that's a thing that happens, right? That's so interesting. So that's a good question, actually. As you think about those experiences, that's so much for a young kid to deal with. Did you feel like it was hard for people to remember that because they were trying to, quote unquote, help or deal with the disability piece or the language piece or with your mom or any of that piece? Did you find that they, you were treated more adult-like in that way? I was. And I became really fast, used to be with adults, to an inconvenient extent to my mom, because then I would be nosy and I'd ask very, like, not convenient questions. (laughs) I will, another short story, at this my ADHD. 
my mom was having a cosmetic thing done. And I remember that she was talking on the phone to her friend. She's like, oh, like, you know, I have to pay like $200 for the blood test. And so I'm overhearing this. And at this point, I'm nine. And after she's done, I'm like, mommy, why are you paying for your blood test? Your insurance is supposed to pay for your blood test. And she goes, oh, no, don't worry about it. She, and, I, you know, I was somebody, I was always looking for the injustice. My mom's like, you would always make least. So she's like, we have to investigate that. Like, let me know who I need to. I was nine. I was like, let me know if I need to call the insurance because they're supposed to pay for it. You know, Mary, I knew that you were really good at your job, but as I'm getting proximate to you here, I'm just seeing how like much of a destiny fulfillment this really is. I mean, investigative skills, the having to be, I mean, that's so interesting too, is like not only having to be, so we talk about this sometimes of, you know, folks saying, well, I had to be grown up before I was really, when I was still a kid, it almost seems like you kind of relished in this. I mean, you were kind of like, okay, with private investigator, citizen detective, insurance advocate at nine years old. Like you were cool with this. Yeah, I think I didn't know how to be any other way. And of course, at the time, you know, and it's taken me many years to even know how to name this. But I think even as a kid, I saw how my mom was treated different because she didn't speak English. And I could see that and I could sense that and I didn't know why. Like there was no reasoning in my head, like breaking it down. It was just, I noticed this thing and I have the ability to help my mom. And why wouldn't I do that? Because my mom has been and always will be my hero. Like she made so many sacrifices. She came to the U.S. at the age of 26 with literally nowhere to go, like nowhere She landed at JFK and called somebody who was Columbia, like, where can I stay? And like, she took it away from there because she cared so much about her children having a good life. And so I knew that, like, I didn't understand the extent, but I knew that. And so I've always been super attached to my mom. And like I said, I just have like this leaning towards things being just like you don't get just to screw with people because of who they are. And of course, I would have never been able to name that when I was a kid. But it was just like, that was just who I was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, Mary, because oftentimes people talk about when we talk about discrimination or we talk about kind of things and they're saying, well, kids, you know, kids don't discriminate. They don't notice this stuff. And it's like, of course they notice. Of course we notice color. Of course we notice you know, ability. Of course, we notice race and ethnicity and gender and all these things. It's just that we don't have context at that age for maybe why that matters on a social level. But what I'm hearing from you, which is so good, is that it still gets in there, friends. Like it's still, there's a feeling, there's something in your bones. There's a, an unease that is present, even when you don't have the words or maybe the context to understand what's happening. Do you think that's still kind of lives in us or in you in particular, as you think about this kind of paying attention when things feel unjust? Like, do you feel it physically when you're kind of dealing with these things? I mean, now this is my job and I've made this my profession and I'm really understanding it and being able to break it down and having the tools and knowledge and expertise to be a good advocate. But I think that what's hard about this work, and we always talk about this, and what's hard about holding the identity is that 
not only do I feel it physically, but I also know what's happening. But sometimes it takes you by surprise. One of the best advocates I know, her name is Sassy Outwater, right? She created this amazing Facebook post about she's like a superstar advocate. I can't even explain what a rock star this woman is. And she had this moment where she was in line at DMV and some man comes up to her and just grabs her. And it's like, give me your paperwork. And she froze because it's such an invasion and it's so unexpected and it happens all the time. And she froze for a moment. And this woman behind her goes, please let go of her. She's perfectly fine. And it gave her that second to re like gather herself and then to advocate for herself. Because even when you know what's happening, even when you can name it, understand it, it still takes you by surprise because we're just humans. You're like, you're la da da, going along, you know, I expect to be inaccessible, but you don't always expect like that invasion and those aggressive behaviors that happen all the time. And sometimes you have like that trauma response. So do I still carry it? Yes, but I think it shows up in different ways. That's so good. And I want to talk more about the advocate piece, but before we move on, I don't want to lose you talking about your mom. And your mom being here, can we just give your mom a little shout out? Like, what's your mom's name? What's she up to? She's the best. Yes. She's amazing. She is now a caregiver. And my stepdad was, owns property and built that up when he was young and immigrated to the U.S. But he had a stroke in 2016. And my mom, who literally has a fourth grade education, took his properties, remodeled everything, like literally one of the smartest businesswomen I know. And I'm like, I have an MBA. Like, I don't even know how to do this. Like how you're so, oh my God, it's just so smart and amazing. And to me, I'm always like, you know, I think that we equate education with intelligence, which I think is a false narrative. I don't think I know it's a false narrative. And I think it's just, to me, it's just a constant reminder. And I always use her as an example. We're like, well, I have this and this degree. I'm like, okay, well, you still did a very silly thing. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Well, and then we're all learning in different ways, right? I connect with that. And if, in the first episode, Alex and I, we talked about my grandma, who was a similar situation. So she had a maybe fourth, fifth grade education and ended up managing restaurants and doing all these things when she really wasn't reading. I mean, she really didn't read until and figured out a way to manage all these in a time when that wasn't happening. And so for your mom to do that as well, I mean, that's such a great, we talk about the shoulders we stand on and it sounds like your mom is a big foundational piece for you. Yeah. Love that. Well, I just wanted to give some shout out to Mama Fernandez right there, if that's okay. And then let's go back to talking about your, the superstar advocate. You said her name was Sally. Is that correct? Sassy. Her name, her actual name is Sassy, which I'm just like, amazing. Perfect. Perfect and amazing. So you talked about one, one very specific behavior for an advocate, right? You talked about giving someone a minute to pause, collect themselves when you are, you know, my English and Irish friends gave us the word gobsmacked, for which I'm forever grateful. And I think you can be gobsmacked with your words. You can be physically gobsmacked and you're just that moment of emotional flooding that comes. And an active advocacy for our listeners is we're always talking about what are these everyday inclusive behaviors? And one of those things is giving someone that moment, right? So when we say 
being an upstander is sometimes about saying, whoa, hey, wait a minute, stop, hold on. Even if we don't have words, making a sound, whatever, but giving folks that composure to be able to then ask for what they need or to be able to address the situation. What other, when you talk about advocates in your mind and you talked about Sassy being an advocate, what are some other behaviors or some other things that you see good advocates doing that you'd like to see more folks kind of doing either around? So do you want me to talk about advocacy or allyship? Ooh, tell me the difference. Yeah. So for that moment, the woman who was behind her was a, an upstander and an ally in giving her the moment to advocate for herself. And I think, you know, allyship can sometimes you can be an advocate as well. But that was really a moment to me in my mind of allyship of I don't maybe necessarily know everything that's going on. But I do know that this person's space is being violated because she is blind and has a white cane. And I don't think that's okay. So what I'm hearing too is that allies, when we talk about allyship, that it's not perfect, maybe (laughs) sometimes, and that you might not know what to say. What are some other ways in which you think folks can be allies, either to folks with disabilities or just in general, some behaviors that you've seen or you've experienced or you know to be helpful from allies? I think that there's that from a disability perspective, I always have a couple of things that I always ask folks to do. One is educate yourself. You know, I have a lot of moments, I get in a lot of overrides and <laughs> where all of a sudden my Uber driver is interrogating me about my disability. Like, and this happens all the time. And so when I'm feeling snarky, I'm like, well, tell me about your heart condition. And they're like, well, I don't have one. Mary, you know, one of the things I think we share is that when we talk about intervention strategies, we rarely talk about sarcasm as an intervention strategy. And it can be quite useful, actually. It can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Depends on the day. And, you know, if I'm feeling snarky and educating, I'm like, well, you're asking me about private health information and you're literally somebody who's driving me and I might never see you again. And I just don't think that's appropriate. I'm like, okay, cool. But like, All of that to say, as an ally, please educate yourself. If you see a disabled person, it is not the time to ask them about their private health information because that's what it is. Also, as allies, I think that, you know, it's different with children. I will say that. It's different with children. I'd rather if your child, I'm traveling around, this happens a lot actually in airports when you go into bathrooms, like, you know, there'll be kiddos around. They're like, mommy, why does she have a cane? And I've heard the most interesting responses. One of my favorite is, it tells her where to go. Like, like it's like, a, yeah. <laughs> like it's a talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I will usually interrupt those moments. And I'm like, no, it doesn't tell me where to go. It actually helps me navigate by telling me if something is in front of me. Like, look, I can, look, there's a wall right there and see how I had to stop because it poked the wall first. Like, that's what it does. But also, I can tap it around in these cool ways and hear, like, if there's walls around me or, like, look, this bathroom is super echoey. So that tells me that it's, like, really high ceilings and all hard surfaces. So, like, rather than – because what happens when we shut children down is that then it creates that cycle of taboo and ultimately the fact that we other disability, that if we find it so scary and taboo that nobody ever talks about it, which then becomes a problem. So as parents, it's okay to talk to your children. It's okay to go up to somebody and be like, hey, 
Hi, my name is so-and-so. I don't mean to interrupt. My child has a question. Is it okay for them to ask you or would you rather me, you know, answer and research this later? Most people be like, it's okay if they have a moment. But like just asking, is it okay? It's my kid, I think is appropriate. A lot of people have an urge when they see somebody disabled navigating the world, they have an urge to step in, like swoop in and help. <laughs> and it is really a swooping motion. Like Yes, it's a swooping. It's a flying in, so to speak. Yes. You are fortunate I have arrived. And you're like, wait, I don't need your help. So I think if, you know, it is good to like be observant. And if you see somebody going up to them, like, hey, how are you? How are you? Do you need any help? Can I do anything? Yes, no. Okay, thank you. Just wanted to make sure. That's it. So you can check in. That's cool. Sometimes I am lost and I'm like, actually, I don't, I'm looking for this. Can you help me look for this? And like with blind people saying, okay, would you like to hold my arm? Or would you like to follow my voice? Like, how would you like to navigate? Always asking for people's consent. That is so basic to me. But ask people's consent. Yeah. And it goes back to Mary to this, where you're talking about advocacy and all those things too is, and you know, friends, we see this isn't just, we see this with lots of different things, right? We see the savior complex of I'm going to go in, I'm going to help. And as allies, you know, in whatever way you're allies, I think that reminding ourselves that we need to first ask what people need <laughs> and that solving with, so solving our instances of inequality, solving our systemic issues, all the stuff, even solving a, an interaction or helping in an interaction has to be with and not for. We can't stand back and I can't say, this is my version of you getting where you need to go. Let me just grab your arm, even though you don't know me, and let me shuffle you through the airport. So it's that checking in. And I think you said it's like a very basic thing, but I think it's such an important point to remember is that asking folks, talking to folks, saying, you know, I have a kid. Is this a good time? And I think it's interesting because you said earlier, you know, now is not the time to ask them about their medical things. And I love that you didn't say what time is now because no time. Like when someone's in an elevator, it's like no time is the appropriate time. And how true is that? And for those of you who, you know, who grew up with, this was my very well-meaning parents as well, is you saw someone different, your arm went out and you did a point. And, you know, immediately my mom's mom came across and shoved that arm down and says, we don't point, we don't stare. And what happens is we don't see people or we don't experience people or we other, and in your words was so great, is we're othering folks instead of just leaning into that curiosity and either approaching and or saying, hey, I don't know, let's go to the library, let's get a book about that, or let's watch a YouTube video and find out more about how the cane works and all the really cool things that, it, that I can do. I think that's such a good reminder. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. I just, I got so excited. No, that's okay. I know I love that. And I think it is okay. You know, particularly kids, I just see this so much. It's okay to say, you know, I don't know. Instead of making something up, like people do this with service animals as well. Like, why does that person have a dog? Oh, it takes her places. Well, actually the handler is telling the dog what to do. The dog isn't a GPS. I love like people have this idea that guide dogs are like some kind of GPS. And I'm like, home, buddy. And buddy. <laughs> buddy goes home. Hey, listen. Home. And this is another reminder. Do not pet the service animals. We do, do not, not pet the service animals, y'all. They are working. 
<laughs> they are working. I know they're gorgeous and adorable. Don't pet them. I do have one more, which is always ask, is this accessible? Always. Because I don't have the option. It is not optional for me when I show up to a place to then be like, is this accessible? And usually they're like, no, we never thought about it. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Instead of that, you know, like leveraging the fact that you may not need it in the moment, but also disability is the one thing that anybody can join temporarily or permanent at any point in your life. So really it's an investment in your future to think about these things. We're like, oh man, I never noticed. There are no ramps here. What if I'm dragging a suitcase? What if I have a baby carriage? One of my friends was like, you know, I never realized how inaccessible the world was until I had a baby and a baby carriage and I couldn't get in anywhere. That's right. That's proximity though, right, Mary? And it's getting proximate to those things. And, you know, I remember after my dad also had a stroke and my mom was also a caretaker. So we have to connect on that sometime. But when he was suddenly in a wheelchair and hadn't used a wheelchair before, and all of a sudden I felt like I developed this like super scanning ability where I never saw, I was like, oh, a bump, a curb, some snow, you know, all of these things that I never even noticed before, because generally I go through the world and don't have to worry or think about, let me just say, think about it all whether or not I can access a building or access technology or whether or not, most importantly, I can be my most brilliant self. I can express myself fully. I can show the world what I can do. And y'all, we mess it up. My friend Mary here has helped me because I've messed it up because it's not something I'm naturally thinking about. So Y'all just to think about that idea of, it's called the curb cut effect. We talked about designing from the margins is when they did curb cuts in sidewalks and curbs. Originally, it was for folks who were using wheelchairs. But then what they found were benefited lots of people, people with strollers, people using hand carts, people on bicycles, people you know who are carrying luggage or packages or all these things is that it benefits everyone. So when we start there, Mary, we could get an education all day, but I want to keep talking about you. And I want to ask you, so one of the things, hopefully this is okay. You can tell me if this is an okay story to tell, but I got to meet you in person. And one of the things I will tell you all about Mary is that Mary is always dressed splendidly. Like her fashion is like on point. And I remember this time when I met you for the first time and you were wearing just like this dress was just like, wow, it was so good. It was just perfect. And I was asking you about this dress and you described the dress and you were like, yeah, it's got this and this. And I had this moment and I kind of so I renamed it the yachting dress. Thanks to the you. yachting dress. Yes. And so I asked Mary y'all that this is my own like knowledge building. I was like, Mary, how are you able to appreciate fashion so much? And how are you able to know that's a dress you like or that's a style you like? I don't know, Mary, would you be willing to share a little bit about kind of how you interact with fashion? Because I think that was a huge learning moment for me, how you interact with fashion and how that works as somebody with a visual disability. How does that kind of work for you? Yeah. So for me, you know, fashion and style is determining what makes you feel good. At the end of the day is how you feel is how you will be able to show up in the world. So if you feel that you're wearing something that really suits you, and also it's your opinion that matters at the end of the day, even if people are looking at you like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know what? If you're like, this suits me, and I'm going to carry myself confidently, that will have a more impactful effect. So I love fashion. I love style. My mom's a very stylish person. Like, oh my God, 
she was a hairdresser. So we've always like that was something that growing up, I always loved about her. And so, you know, I over the years, I've refined my style and my taste. I'm big on textures. So I don't wear like when we go shopping, my mom and I like crack up in the stores like, oh, my God, this feels like a curtain. This feels like upholstery. Like who would wear <laughs> Like, if I put on this jacket, I will feel like a straight-up couch. Like, Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And in some sense, isn't that like where we're, I mean, you're cutting right to the core of what yeah. fashion should be about, right? Anyway, is how you feel in clothes. It is all about how you feel in clothes. And so texture is big for me. I've learned about colors and color palettes. And for me, I had vision when I was growing up. So this is my experience. These are all eye statements. So I know colors. I know like they remind me of certain things. And so I know kind of like how I want to reflect me into the world. And then I also just learned about my shape and my body and what looks and feels good versus what, you know, might not show something that I don't want it to show. And there's also an element of so when I go into a store, I have a pretty good idea of I'll just pick up a piece. I'll check out the cut. I'll ask about the color, the texture. And usually I have a very good sense of what does and doesn't look good. I mean, there are some times where we all get a real wrong or sometimes when the salesperson is like, you should try this on. And then I try it on. And like before I walk out of the dressing room, I can't see myself in the mirror. I'm like, this looks dreadful. But I'll walk out anyway. And they're like, oh. Well, you know, I would get it a size bigger and maybe do this. And, and I'm like, no, this is bad. Like, why would you lie to me? Listen, Mary knows. Mary knows. She knows what's up. <laughs> so like understanding my body shape and what is fitting and what's not. And then I also just had a lot of feedback growing up. So like my mom would just describe how things look. Like sometimes she would be like, I remember last year we were in a rush. Macy's was closing. I was going to a conference. I needed suits. I needed at least a suit. And so we off the shelf just grabbed this suit that had, we didn't really notice. It had like shoulder pads. And then it was like this capri pants that were bell bottom. And I'm an hourglass figure. So y'all, I put this on and I just turned around and my mom just goes, Oh, and I'm like, I look like a boxer, don't I? <laughs> like you could feel it. You're like, I know what I'm I like, look like. Yeah, I, like this big ass shoulders. Like it was not flattering. And we were just cracking. Like, just like, please take it off. <laughs> but like, it's all been years of understanding what I like and don't like. And they're just things that I like. And I tend to be more towards the glamorous end of things because that's what I like. And that's who I am. Like, I am a total diva and I'm okay with that. So is my dog. <laughs> well, and you sing to boot. So you've got the diva, you've got the diva bit on both sides. For those of you who are listening, Mary has a lovely keyboard piano behind her as well. And I know that you're a lovely singer as well. And, you know, it's interesting to me, Mary, because it almost is like, you know, I don't know that everybody spends that much time thinking about what they like, what they don't like and all of these things. And so you're actually really in touch with what feels good on your body, what you know your body really well. And kind of that self-knowing piece is interesting because I think that there are a lot of folks who maybe don't or we're still on that journey. Let me use I statements. 
some of us who are still on that journey, because you can't tell right now, but I got some shoulder pad-ish. They're little shoulder patties, but this blazer makes me feel a little boxery. I won't lie, but it's working for me. It's working for me today. We're just going to trust like, me. And like some days you want to look like a boxer. Hey, listen, some days, I'm here you know, for it. it's okay. It's okay. Well, Mary, let me shift gears a little bit here. Let me ask you, you know, part of getting proximate, I think, is understanding what inclusion really is for folks who are different from us, right? So I can sit and define inclusion and say, if we do these six things, that's an inclusive Cisco. But that is still coming from a, you know, a white, able-bodied person who is, first of all, let me ask you about the term able-bodied. Is that a correct term? I can tell in your face, you don't love it. Tell me a better term. Yeah, within the disability community in the U.S. and U.K. and Canada, we have this model called the identity model, which is that disability is part of our identity and it's inseparable. It's not just a trait, but it is part of who we are. And comma also the idea that disability is something that we'll actually all share as the human experience. And so non-disabled is really what we think, because if you actually think of the standard, you're like one fall away from being disabled. I'm not saying that in a mean way, but like you could sprain your ankle when you get up from your chair. You know, sometimes I get up from my chair and fall on my butt. Listen, I fall down a lot. This is not that far off in the future. You know, thank you for that, Mary. And I didn't want to make you have to educate in that point, but I remembered as I was Saying it, it was it was coming out of my mouth. I was like, there's a better, there's a better way to frame this. And that is me unlearning some terminology that I was taught a long time ago. So thank you. So all this to say is I'm coming from kind of my lens, my experience of what inclusion looks and sounds like, how it shows up for you. As we look at Cisco, what is an inclusive Cisco look and sound like for you? What are some of the behaviors or what are the, some of the things that you would like to have happen as part of an inclusive Cisco? And we're talking Cisco specifically. Well, doesn't have to be, but, you know, just kind of a workplace. How about a, an inclusive workplace or? I just want to know where to focus. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and really have shifted towards in the last couple of years as an advocate is not so much inclusion, but belonging and feeling that, and, you know, as a DI professional, you know all about belonging, but really feeling that you're part of a culture because, you know, where diversity is bringing the people in, inclusion is building the environment where they can participate and thrive. Belonging is really, that becomes part of everything. And so you feel that you can just be, you don't have to try, you don't have to mask, you don't have to code switch, you don't have to minimize your access needs. You can just be who you are and show up and just do your work knowing that all of these things are in place that are going to help you be successful and that you can just be yourself. You don't have to make other people comfortable. And I think that's what's most important is like, how do we get to a place where I don't feel that it's my job to make other people comfortable because I'm different from them? And that takes a lot of work, y'all. You know, I think most companies aren't, like, their software isn't accessible. Buildings aren't accessible. We have these beautiful offices in the Coda building in Atlanta. And I don't think anybody but me noticed. And then I started pointing it out to everybody because I was pissed off that they have these new elevators. I don't know why elevators, like, need to be remodeled. I don't know what, like, what what's wrong with old school elevators where you press a button and then you press another button. But now you like, 
you have to like, you get a touch screen, which if I'm blind, then I have to plug in some earphones into, and then it'll like walk me through different menus and like make me wait 10 seconds in between to announce the next floor. And if I'm going from floor one to floor 20, like 10 times 20, that's 200, which is like what, a minute and like two minutes of time? Three minutes. Like of me standing there waiting for my floor to be at It's just this lack of thoughtfulness because this is what happens. There's ADA standards. So the building people were like, we need new fancy elevators. So they were like, the elevator company was like, sure, here is a new fancy elevator with a touchscreen. They're like, well, we have to check this box about, is it accessible? And they're like, oh, yeah, people can bring their earpods. And then it'll talk to them like, okay, but nobody actually sat there and did the experience of, well, let me tell you how this works. And is it actually convenient? <laughs> There's this line between accessibility, like, does it technically check the box? Yeah, that's performative versus what's the impact on the user? And how is that going to make them feel? Because I had to be with somebody to take the elevator, like just straight up. I couldn't take the elevator on my own. Not even to the second floor. Yeah. And that's such a great example. When we talk about kind of why we need to be proximate to different perspectives and ideas, especially as we're designing product and designing solutions and all of these things, because yeah, there's always going to be those checkboxes. But to your point, how does someone feel when they're using that product? What is it? What are the kind of ways in which it is? It's a barrier to their brilliance, their patience, their ability to move around freely, all of those things. I'm going to give one more example because I think this is important. And I think this gives a message. Oftentimes, buildings will have, quote unquote, accessible entrances, but they will be around the back of the building. So there's this joke that everybody has within like the disability community or quadriplegic wheelchair users who are like, yeah, you know, we always have to go by the dumpsters. Imagine if you, a non-disabled person, every time you had to go in somewhere, you had to go in literally through the back door. Like, what is that message giving you? It's like you're a second-class citizen. You know, historically, socially, we made people who were inferior in some way socially, right? Like people who were in service, racially in America, Black people. We had separate doors for them because they were not as good as whoever the dominant group is. And that's what we still do for disabled people. And we think it's okay. Because at least you're getting in. Like, what else would you want? Why do you want to come in through the front door? At least we're doing you the favor of letting you in. Technically, there's an inclusive design, right? Like, you are letting them in, technically inclusive. But that certainly does not feel like the longing. It doesn't feel like acceptance. It doesn't feel like I am valued. I'm an equally valued human as everybody else. Absolutely. And thank you for that example. I think that's a really clear example to talk about when we make those kind of decisions or when we're only designing from one perspective or we're making these little last minute add-ons to make things accessible. Instead of doing that from the beginning, it's sending a message, friends. It's sending a message loud and clear. And I want you to hear Mary say that. Okay, Mary. So we've got something we call kind of a lightning round. So these are just quick responses. I know there was a quiz. (laughs) No quiz. These are just some things we asked folks at the end of the episode. So you talked about this a bit already, but you know, when I think when Michelle Obama came to speak with us, she talked about, you know, who's at your kitchen table, right? This idea of kind of who do you laugh with, cry with, support with Mary Fernandez, who is at your kitchen table? 
so many people, but basically people that I share in community with and or people that we are curious about each other and have built a deep friendship and connection. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. What does hope mean to you? When I say hope, what does that mean to you? Hope is why I wake up every day. It is the idea that today we can all, everybody, every human has the ability to do one thing that's going to impact the world positively. Beautiful. What is your go-to karaoke song? Total Eclipse of the Heart, which I do not sing well, but oh my God, what a power, oh, we could do an episode on that. I love that because that gives you a great insight into Mary. It's a power ballad. It is challenging to sing. It, it involves under people. It's collaborative. It involves community. I mean, everybody's singing around to that song. It's topical. I love it. And Mary, last question for you today. You know, what's one thing you would like to leave our listeners with as they continue to get proximate to folks who are different from them? One thing you'd like to leave folks with? I think one thing, the very one thing, don't be afraid of the word disability and don't be afraid of disabled people. Ooh. All right. I love it. Mary, I am a better person, a better Ciscoanian, and a better just person out in the world because I know you and because we've gotten proximate. So thank you for spending time with us today. And I look forward to many more chats. And thank you for the work that you're doing at Cisco. You know, Mary is out there fighting for all of us, y'all. So take the opportunity as a moment to honor her work to go out and learn more about disability allyship and what you can do and what you can just kind of continue to do to be a light for other people. As Mary, you've been a light to us at Cisco. So thank you. Thank you, Callie. Thank you for listening to the Let's Get Proximate podcast powered by Cisco. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps to securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com.